Chapter 17 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. A portion of the summer theatrical vacation was passed in traveling. Our first visit was to the birthplace of the great prince of dramatists, whose transcendent genius of itself consecrates the stage. During one of our drives through Stratford, our carriage chanced to be filled with water lilies, just gathered at Victoria Spa. By a sudden impulse, they were woven by me into a wreath and flung at Shakespeare's door. The old woman who was in charge of the house spied the snowy token and carried it to the room which is exhibited as the one in which Shakespeare was born. At Anne Hathaway's cottage, we drank from that well of the most pellucid water beside which she and her inspired poet-lover may often have stood. The sunny portion of one day was spent rowing on the Avon. The stream bore no white water lilies on its bosom, but was profusely gemmed with a flower of cerulean blue resembling a hyacinth. A few of these were gathered as mementos. We were amused with our boatman's virility. His ideas as Shakespeare were irreverent to a degree that turned indignation into mirth. He said he believed that some man of the name of Shakespeare did live in that butcher's shop, but as far as he could find out, the man didn't differ particularly from other folks. As for the trash that was shown to strangers as having belonged to Mr. Shakespeare, it had all been bought up at sales of old furniture. He knew that for a fact. When he discovered that we were Americans, he asked as many questions concerning the far-off El Dorado, and ended with, Well, I should like to go to America once, and my wife says she has no objection to go if she can come home at night to sleep. At Charlecote we passed several hours, several more amongst the grass-grown ruins of Kenilworth Castle, and the rest of the day at Guy's Cliff and Warwick Castle. A beautiful portrait of Mrs. Siddons was pointed out to us at the latter place by the housekeeper, who assured us that Mrs. Siddons had resided in that very castle in the capacity of lady's maid. An expression of incredulity from one of our party quite incensed the narrator. Her fertile imagination furnished us with a marvelous sketch of the early life of the Queen of Tragedy, the biographer who complained that her history lacked incident might have found an embice de liche with such a treasury. The genuineness of the materials and that of the Shakespearean curiosities would have probably weighed alike in the balance of truth. At the Isle of Wight, the Eden of England, we passed several weeks of enchantment. The circuit of the island was made in daily jaunts. During these excursions, our memories were richly stored with pictures of varied loveliness. Through gradual transitions, the scenic beauty of the island glides from the wildly sublime to the softly beautiful. The rest of the summer 
flew merrily by at a pretty furnished cottage hired for the season in richmond how charming i thought that little cottage with its porch and windows draped with jasmine vine now and then the wind would loosen festoons of the starry flowers and blow them into the window as if inviting us to pluck them their fragrance circled the cottage with a perfumed zone every moonlit evening we rode upon the tins past the pope's villa and other memorable localities and every sunshiny day found us wandering through the exquisite kew gardens or the magnificent rounds of hampton court or beside the romantic virginia water or wherever nature and art clasp hands in picturesque union within our reach during this summer for the first time in my life i comprehended the delightful interpretation of the words perfect health what the poet meant to convey by the fresh joyous sense of being was a new revelation to me the english climate seemed to have endowed me with an elasticity and strength which defied fatigue the distance i could walk became problematical i could undergo any amount of hill climbing or wagon jolting or horseback galloping the fragile form so often a subject of pitying regret to my english friends and which the mistress of the wardrobe on the evening of my london debut had aptly lacking to a beanstalk now rounded into robustness my mind and spirits sympathetically partook of the vigour that animated my frame this summer seemed to me like a sabbath rest after the labour exhaustion trials of the six working days appointed for toil strange that no prophetic voice within whispered that such halcyon calm might precede life's heaviest storms no warning angel cried o joyful heart exult not so mistrust that prospect fair it is the lure of death and woe the ambush of despair or if he did the voice could not reach my clay-clouded senses our engagement at the marylebone theatre had been renewed for another year after that we proposed to return to america our new contract stipulated that i should only appear four nights in the week the olympic theatre had been destroyed by fire and was rebuilding the lycee and manager of the marylebone had also become its lycee the new edifice was to be completed by christmas we were to appear at the Marlebon from September until December, then open the new Olympic and remain there until the close of the season. While Mr. Mawat was discussing with the manager the terms of the engagement, I expressed my surprise at the total disregard of all managers for the private comfort of the unfortunate being except stars. I fancy I made some rather satirical comments upon the style of dressing-rooms in which I had spent the larger portion of so many evenings for the last few years. I amused myself with giving a burlesque description of some of the underground cells and attic corners which I had been forced to occupy while being arrayed in the purple and gold of royalty, butterfly splendors compressed into the narrowest of chrysalis shells the manager supposing that i rebelled at these discomforts as much as i ironically pretended made answer if you conclude to remain next season the theatre shall boast of a star dressing-room such as never before was seen
I answered laughingly. I suppose you will send some profile stage properties to my room and ask me to be as good-natured as the audience and believe them to be what they seem, accepting them at theatrical valuation. We removed to London for the opening of the theater early in September. I was not to act on the first night, but had consented to appear upon the stage during the singing of God Save the Queen. This anthem is always sung by the whole company at the opening of every English theater. The chamber appropriated to the use of the star was a small compartment partitioned off from the green room. The green room is the theatrical drawing room, where the company assembled during the play and where their call for the stage is made. It is very seldom frequented by the stars. They generally retire from the stage to their own rooms. The apartment to which I was conducted on reaching the theater had undergone a transformation worthy of Aladdin's lamp. The carpet was of roses on a bed of moss. The paper on the walls represented panels formed of the loveliest bouquets. A wreath of flowers to match surrounded the ceiling. The gaslight streamed through ornaments shaped like lilies a most lifelike group of water lilies, executed by Valentine Bartholomew, flower-painted to Her Majesty, hung upon the wall, and four mirrors reflected the furniture of pale blue satin and gold. I stood a while, gazing in dazzled astonishment. I had wished for comfort, not splendor, and was ungrateful enough to doubt that they had been, in this instance, united. The suspicion proved correct. The boudoir dressing chamber became sort of a showroom, which crowds of visitors nightly begged the privilege of inspecting. The furniture was too costly for any but the most careful use. My meek maid, the same I mentioned in the previous chapter, used to say with a sigh, I don't like fairyland where there's real work going on. I care to move any more than if it were a glass house. Everything looks as brittle as if it would break by looking at it. King Midas found it inconvenient to eat gold instead of bread. I was punished in a somewhat similar fashion, discovering the comfortlessness of inappropriate magnificence. The theater opened with Epps Sargent's tragedy of Velasco. Fanny Vining impersonated Isadora, of which Ellen Tree was the original in America, and Mr. Davenport enacted Velasco. Both characters were finely delineated. The play found favor with the public and was several times repeated. A number of new plays were produced with various degrees of success during the season, but the palm was won by the classic tragedy of Virginia, Translated from the French of Mr. Latour de Saint-Ibaz by John Oxenford, Esquire. Monsieur Latour dramatized the Roman story of Virginia for Mademoiselle Rachel. The chief interest is made to turn upon the female character, and all opportunities afforded by the historical narrative for portraying the tender and heroic passions are carefully improved. Mr. Davenport enacted Virginius, and I, Virginia. 
Shakespeare's Sibylline and Twelfth Night were revived and ran for some nights, but the most eminently successful of all our Shakespearean revivals was Romeo and Juliet, produced in the style of magnificence as regards scenery and stage appointments that can seldom have been equaled in any theater. Miss Fanny Vining gave a fervid impersonation of the impassioned Romeo, nor did her sex destroy the illusion as might have been supposed i never knew the tragedy so popular with the public and have never had a romeo whom i liked so well mr davenport played mercutio and i juliet the play was repeated a number of nights in succession the season closed early in december with mr davenport's benefit the house overflowing on the occasion a portion of the company were engaged for the new olympic that theatre was to open at christmas under the same management as the marleybone the manager at the termination of this prosperous season desired to express his acknowledgments to the ladies and gentlemen of the company and artisans engaged in the theatre they accordingly received an invitation to assemble upon the stage on the evening after the theatre closed a few of the literati and members of the press were also requested to attend the theatre was decorated with garlands and banners, the stage thrown open to its full extent and set out as a ballroom. At the upper end were three tables. One, running parallel with the footlights, was furnished with raised seats. These were designed for the manager, Lee C., stars, the press, and invited guests. Two other tables ran horizontally at either end of the center banqueting board. The members of the company sat at one of these tables. The corduboot ballet, artisans, etc., occupied the other. No one who had been regularly employed in the theater was omitted in the general invitation, not even the somnambulant little callboy who might have preferred the rare luxury of going to bed betimes. Callboys are always sleepy although the position of the subordinates of the theatre might have on that night been a novel one to their honour be it spoken the most fastidious observer could not have picked a flaw in their conduct their decorum was unimpeachable no loud mirth was heard throughout the evening subdued enjoyment reigned in its place with as strict observance of nice proprieties as would have been deemed necessary in an aristocratic ballroom the assembled company were addressed by the manager who expressed to them his indebtedness for their exertions and his regret at parting with some of their number various speeches were made by other parties present and a number of favorite ballads sung by the musician of the theatre and one or two of the guests Albert Smith, of Mount Block Memory, contributed largely to the entertainment by his comic relations. A few quadrilles and waltzes had been gone through before supper. There was but one cotillion and a country dance after the collation. It had been arranged that the entertainment should break up at an early hour. The ceremony of leave-taking had just commenced, when a shriek, wild and ear-piercing, broke upon the startled crowd a flying figured enveloped in flames was seen rushing up the stage 
One of the young ballet girls had carelessly stood too near the footlights. Her ball dress of inflammable materials had taken fire. Screaming frantically, she darted from side to side, fanning by her flight the devouring element, which, in mad bewilderment, she thought to escape. She looked like a cloud of fire as she flew. Her white arms, tossing wildly above her head, were all of the human form that was visible through the flames. Her cries were echoed from many lips. Those who could fled from the dangerous contact. Vain efforts were made by the gentlemen to seize her, but the, for the bravery of Mrs. Renshaw, the mistress of the wardrobe, the poor girl's life must, in a few moments, have been sacrificed. This courageous woman caught the burning girl in her arms, threw her to the ground, and fell upon her, smothering the flames, while she fearlessly burned her own face and hands. Others followed her example, and the fire was quickly extinguished. I cannot attempt adequately to describe the scene that ensued upon the very spot where a few moments previous all had been serene and harmonious gaiety some of the ladies fainted some fell into violent hysterics some ran screaming into the street the gentlemen rushed about to obtain assistance for them above the mingled sounds of horror and confusion rose the shrill cries of the half-burned girl and the lamentations of her mother, who had been quickly apprised of her daughter's peril. The person of the young girl was dreadfully burned, her arms almost to the bone. Strange to say, her face remained untouched. For a time, her recovery was very doubtful. I saw her almost daily through her long illness, and her patience would have done credit to a stronger mind and a higher station in life. The public testified their sympathy in a very substantial manner. Ample subscriptions were raised for her, the best medical attention supplied, and not a few aristocratic carriages stopped at her humble residence in one of the narrowest, closest streets in London, while she received charitable visits from wealthy and fashionable owners. I know nothing of the history of Miss R., except what occurred during her illness. Ballet girls, in general, are a despised, persecuted, and often misjudged race. The rank they hold in a theater is only a degree raised above that of the male supernumeraries. They are looked down upon by the acting members of the company as though they belong to a different order of beings. In some London theaters, they have a separate green room, from that devoted to the actors and actresses. They are not even allowed to enter the latter apartment, and yet, during my eight years' experience upon the stage, I have known among this despised class many and many an instance of girls endowed with the highest virtues, leading lives of unimpeachable purity, industry, devotion to their kin, and fulfilling the hardest duties of life with a species of stoical heroism. The woman who, on the stage, is in danger of losing the highest attribute of her womanhood, her priceless native dower of chastity, would be in peril of that loss in any situation of life where she was in some degree of freedom. 
particularly one in which she was compelled by circumstances to earn her own livelihood i make this assertion fearlessly for i believe it firmly there is nothing in the profession necessarily demoralizing or degrading not even to the poor ballet girl in support of this position i give a brief sketch of a young girl belonging to a ballet company whose conduct i had the opportunity of watching for several years i do not deem it necessary to mention the circumstances that first attracted my attention and caused me to take interest in her fate she had been educated as a dancer from infancy she had been on the stage all her life had literally grown up behind the scenes of a theatre her parents were respectable though it is difficult to define their position in the social scale at the time i knew her her mother was paralytic and bedridden her father was enfeebled by age and could only earn a pittance by copying law papers georgina the ballet girl their only child by her energetic exertions supplied the whole wants of the family and what were those exertions the mind of the most imaginative reader could hardly picture what i know to be a reality georgina's parents kept no servant she discharged the entire duties of the household cooking washing sewing everything from daylight to midnight not a moment of her time was unemployed she must be at rehearsal every morning at ten o'clock and she had two miles and a half to walk to the theatre before that hour she had the morning meal of her parents to prepare her marketing to accomplish her household's arrangements for the day to make if early in the week her washing if in the middle of the week her ironing if at the close her sewing for she made all of her own and her mother's dresses at what hour in the morning must she have risen her ten o'clock rehearsal lasted from two to four hours more frequently the latter but watch her in the theatre and you never found her hands idle when she was not on the stage you were sure of discovering her in some quiet corner knitting lace cutting great aprons out of tissue paper making artificial flowers or embroidering articles of fancy work by the sale of which she added to her narrow means from rehearsal she hastened home to prepare the midday meal of her parents and attend to her mother's wants after dinner she received a class of children to whom she taught dancing for a trifling sum if she had a half an hour to spare she assisted her father in copying law papers then tea must be prepared and her mother arranged comfortably for the night her long walk to the theatre must be accomplished at least a half an hour before the curtain rose barely time for her to make her toilette if she was belated by her home avocations she was compelled to run the whole distance i have known this to occur not to be ready for the stage would have subjected her to a forfeit between the acts or when she was not on stage there she sat again in her snug corner of the green room dressed as a fairy or a maid of honour or a peasant or a page with a bit of work in her hands only laying down the needle which her fingers actually made fly when she was summoned by the call-boy or required to change her costume by the necessities of the play sometimes she was at liberty at ten o'clock but oftener not until half-past eleven and then there was the long walk home before her 
Her mother generally woke at the hour when Georgina was expected, and a fresh round of filial duties were to be performed. Had not the wearied limbs which that poor ballet girl laid upon her couch earned their sweet repose? And there many whose refreshment is so deserved, whose rising up and lying down are rounded by a circle so holy? No one ever heard her murmur, her fragile form spoke of strength over task. It was more careworn than her face, that always had a look of busy serenity off the stage, a softly animated expression when occupied before the audience in the duties of her profession. She had a ready smile when addressed, a meek reply when rudely chided by the churlish ballet master or despotic stage manager. Many a time I have seen tears dropping upon her work, but if they were noticed, she would brush them away and say she was a fool and cried for nothing. Her devotion to her parents was the strongest impulse of her nature. In her early youth, she had been engaged to a young man, a musician, belonging to the orchestra. They had been betrothed for several years, some fairer face, he could scarcely have found a sweeter had rendered him faithless. She bore her deep sorrow with the lovely submission which elevates and purifies the spirit, but gave her heart away no more. The breath of slander had never shadowed her name. Younger and gayer girls in the theater used to designate her the old maid, but this was the hardest word that anyone ever plied Gina was not such a heart as her what Elizabeth Barrett Browning has described as a fair still house well kept, which humble thoughts had swept and holy prayers made clean? Her answer to a sympathizing, how weary you must be at night, was, yes, but I am so thankful that I have health to get through so much. What would become of my poor mother or father if I fell ill? How many are there who can render up such an account of their stewardship as this poor girl may give in the hereafter? How many can say with her that life has been one perpetual growth of heavenward enterprise? And this flower blossomed within the walls of a theater. Was the indigenous growth of that theater a wallflower, if you like? but still sending up the rich fragrance of gratitude to him by whose hand it was fashioned. To the eyes of the Pharisee who denounces all dramatic representations, while with self-applauding righteousness he boldly approaches the throne of mercy, this ballet girl, like the poor publican, stood afar off. To the eyes of the great judge, which stood the nearer. End of chapter 17